News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Eight days from now, NATO leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden, will attend a meeting in Brussels to talk about the Ukraine situation. Let's find out what that situation is looking like this morning. Joining us now is Crystal Gomansing, who's our Global News European correspondent and joins us to talk about what is happening. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. What is the situation like today? Well, it's day 21 for Russia's full invasion in Ukraine. And like many of the other days, we have seen continued uh, shelling and attacks on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, officials there saying an apartment building was hit this morning, uh, not uh, getting a clear indication as of yet as far as casualties are injured. But again, we're seeing another sort of residential um, unit that has been struck again, um, you know, under uh, typical rules of war, you should not be targeted getting civilians. Russia continuously says it is not doing that, but reports on the ground, clearly um, people are having their homes destroyed. We're also hearing reports that today in Chernihiv, which is in the north of Ukraine, um, that while people were out, um, they were being fired upon while in bread lines today. So uh, trying to get some confirmation on these different reports. But of course, um, information uh, takes a little bit of time to, to get out and get confirmed. And then, of course, there's the challenge because uh, Ukrainian officials have uh, uh, reinstated martial law. There is a, a curfew that is back in place. So these are sort of the daytime hours when people can get out, get food, try to get some of those resupplies so that they can hunker back down. You have to remember, most people are hiding in, in basements or, or metro stations, some sort of, um, you know, bomb shelters. And we know that this morning UNICEF is saying that for every single minute, 55 children have fled their country. And they're saying a Ukrainian child has become a refugee almost every single second since the start of the war. What other figures do we know about when it comes to the humanitarian crisis? And this is really uh, the staggering impact of this war. It's, you know, a lot of people see the images on television or hear the reports on radio, but it comes down to effects on individual lives. And that is exactly what we're seeing. The UN humanitarian um, unit has put out figures almost every day now for the 14th to the 15th. They're saying 3 million people have been displaced since February 24th. 1.8 million have uh, ended up in Poland and uh, 1.9 million internally displaced, moving from places such as, as Kiev and those areas trying to find safe many going to the west to Lviv the numbers are just staggering and you know we we heard from uh, in a, in a report actually um, on the BBC with the the mayor of Warsaw saying that his population has gone up 15% we know the world wow. food bank is calling for additional supports all the charities the red cross calling for supports and these are the people who have made it out not the people who are still you know stuck trying to have basic supplies so that they can survive and we know many many areas uh, we've talked a lot about uh, Kharkiv being being cut off and and just decimated. So in Mariupol and another one. So the the humanitarian crisis continues to unfold, and it is just a huge huge issue. I assume this will be one of the issues that is talked about at that upcoming NATO meeting in Brussels that Prime Minister Trudeau is going to attend. The President of the United States as well. What else do we know about that? 
Yeah, so that's the meeting that will happen in Brussels next week. It'll be leaders of, of NATO countries. But today, right now happening in Brussels, uh, NATO defense ministers are getting together. And of course, Canada's Minister of National Defense is in Brussels for this meeting. It's being called an extraordinary meeting to these two back-to-back gatherings of, of defense ministers and then world leaders. They're really trying to come up with the next steps. What else needs to be done? Of course, Whereas, you know, uh, we've talked about for, for months now the, the bolstering of troops and NATO countries neighboring Ukraine, such as Poland. Um, we know that there's roughly about 100,000 American troops on the ground in Europe, sort of helping to provide support for NATO countries, in addition to about 40,000 NATO-led um, soldiers who are also in these areas. So we're waiting to see, is this going to change? Will there be more efforts put in place? Will anything be added as far as weaponry to Ukraine. So that's sort of what we're watching for the defense minister's meeting happening now. And then next week, the leaders will get together. All right, Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the June heat dome in this province was the deadliest weather event in Canadian history. Almost 600 people were killed. Now, the impact here in B.C. was higher than in neighboring U.S. states, which also suffered through those excruciatingly high temperatures. So why? Why was it so much worse here? Well, that is the question asked in an investigative piece that you can find at the thai.ca. And reporter Jen St. Denis has been working on it and joins us now. Good morning, Jen. Good morning, Simi. Boy, this is quite a deep dive here. I mean, how long have you been working on this? Oh, I started working on it in the fall and I kept on, it was sort of a side of my desk project because I was doing other reporting and it kind of took me longer than I thought. So I, eventually I was like, okay, I just need to, I just need to get this out because I need to get it out before summer, obviously. Right. Now you, you did, you dug in, you got a lot of kind of facts and figures in here, but what, what did you find, Jen, that you say would surprise even you? Well, I was really, um, I was really, really wanting to look at this thing about why Washington and Oregon had um, so many fewer deaths than BC. Well, I guess we should reverse that and say BC had more deaths than Washington and Oregon because it was still bad in Washington and Oregon. They each had over a hundred deaths from this, and I just didn't know why because they actually had higher temperatures. They're further south, um, so that was the main question I was looking into. Um, and yeah, I think the thing that sort of surprised me the most when I started looking into this was just how much earlier, uh, um, the public health officials in Oregon, in Portland had kind of realized that it was going to be very, very dangerous and had actually taken action uh, quite a few days before we did in Vancouver. Okay. And what kind of action did they take? So on, I think on June 22nd, they made this decision to open cooling centers. And we're familiar with that in, in, in Metro Vancouver. We open like community centers and stuff for, for cooling centers in hot weather. Um, but in Oregon, they opened a really, really big center. They opened the convention center um, as a cooling center, which could house like up to 500 people, even with COVID sort of social distancing measures in place. And then they also made the decision um, on June 22nd to keep those that, that cooling center and some other ones open all through the night. Um, and so I was really struck by that because when I looked at what we were doing in the Metro Vancouver area, um, 
there were they people were meeting like municipalities were meeting and having their emergency management meetings and everything and they were deciding to open uh cooling centers but in some cases like new westminster it was the first time they had ever opened cooling centers and nobody made the decision uh, to actually keep them open overnight. Right. One of the other things I found interesting in your piece is that certain neighborhoods, certain municipalities had much worse rates than others. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know if we exactly know why that was, but we can sort of guess. So New Westminster actually had the highest per capita rate um, of deaths. Uh, so they have a much smaller population. I think they had 25 deaths in all, but it was the highest rate per population. And when you look at New Westminster, um, that area has, they have a ton of older apartment buildings. And I've written about these older apartment buildings before because a few years ago, there was a bunch of elderly tenants were being, were, were being evicted from them. There was sort of this eviction problem going on. So I knew about that there was this big population of older people who are totally able to live on their own. Uh, they just have lower incomes and they sort of have moved to what New West or maybe they've, they've been there for a long time. And there's all these older apartment buildings that offer this quite affordable accommodation, um, especially on sort of the brow of the hill neighborhood and then on sort of downtown New Westminster as well. And so that like that was really where we saw a lot of the people getting into trouble was people living in um, often these these older apartment buildings that didn't have air conditioning and often in neighborhoods um, that didn't have as much tree cover um, and access to green space as some other neighborhoods. You had some very personal stories in there that really struck me. Can you tell us about the one about the woman who was just kind of found in her car? Yeah, this was this just illustrated so many things about the heat dome and who it affected. So this was a woman I talked to. Her name is Jennifer Thompson, and Jennifer lives in New Westminster. So she lives in Queens Park, and that's a neighborhood of lovely single-family homes. A lot of them are sort of like older heritage homes, lots of trees. Um, Queens Park is right there. And so she was on, I think, on June 28th, the Monday, which was one of the hottest days. Um, she was on her way home and she noticed this car on her street and it parked in the shade of a tree. And it was making this sort of weird revving sound like there was something wrong with it. And she noticed this woman kind of slumped over. And so she went and asked this, this woman who was sort of in her 60s or maybe early 70s, you know, are you OK? And the woman said, no, I'm, I'm not OK. And so Jennifer took her inside her home and um, this woman was very disoriented, like it was quite obvious she needed medical attention. Uh, but when Jennifer and her husband asked if they could take her to the hospital, she just refused. Uh, they, they tried to call an ambulance. They were told it was going to be hours and hours before an ambulance could get there. The woman did not want to go to hospital. So they just ended up keeping her in their cool in their cooler basement overnight so she could kind of recover. Um, and then later they kind of, they realized after talking with her that she had, she lived in one of those older apartment buildings, you know, just blocks away from them because these neighborhoods, the Brow of the Hill and Queens Park are really qu right beside each other. Um, so this woman just lived blocks away from them. She could, could, did not want to go back to her apartment because she was terrified she would die if she went back there. And she had been in her car for days trying to keep the air conditioning on to oh keep cool. Um, yeah. So awful. that was just. A very dramatic story, but yeah. It really illustrated, though, um, you know, the, the breadth of this that I think a lot of people, if they had made it through or maybe they had air conditioning, they didn't realize how awful this was for so many people. Do you think, Jen, have we learned anything? Yeah, so I think that point about air conditioning is really is a really good one. I think one of the reasons that Oregon and Washington maybe had a lower death toll was that 
um, there is they, they do have a higher percentage yes. of people with air conditioning down there because they do get hotter summers and, we're, and they're more used to it. And I don't think that's something that we can change overnight here. Like we can't just retrofitting everyone with air conditioners is probably not something that's going to happen. Um, but I think thinking about cooling centers, um, you know, I live in a multifamily building and my neighbor, I, I, I called her like, I, I was, I was reporting on Monday and I was all these reports were starting to come out about people dying. And I just got horrified and called my elderly neighbor and she was not okay as well. It was kind of the same story as Jennifer Thompson. Um, and so my building, we're going to make our common room into like a, a, a cooling center that people can go to. So I think, I think we really need to think about, you know, how can we provide people with just a room in a building or some, some sort of like really quick action that we can take to get people out of these hot apartments um, and into some Quickly, sort of cooler yeah. area. But Jen, do you think like people in charge have, have learned, our, learned their lesson in this? I think that for a lot of the municipalities, um, and certainly for the first responders, this was an absolutely harrowing experience. And I do think, um, you know, like the, the mayor of New Westminster, Jonathan Cote, was meeting with emergency management officials throughout this crisis. Um, and they were making decisions that were pretty radical. Like they were deciding to not wait for the ambulance to transport people to the hospital. The firefighters were like putting people into taxis and then following behind, which is totally break this protocol. So I do think that they have realized that the system did not work at all. Um, one thing that I'm going to be tracking is the province apparently has been doing all this work um, in partnership with public health and municipalities to put it in place some sort of plan in the summer that will include um, different types of alerts now for extreme heat and then a, a set of actions that happen when those alerts happen. But there's not a lot of, I didn't get a lot of details from the government mm-hmm. about what exactly that would entail. And they said, oh, the plan will be in place by the summer. <laughs> and so I, I, I'll be like sort of asking them. I'll bet. You know, yeah. uh, like what exactly is <laughs> so for, so for some more details about that? Well, I look forward to talking to you more about it then. Jen, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. The piece is great. It's Jen St. Denis. Um, she's a downtown Eastside beat reporter with the Thai. But check out the piece that she has done on the impact of the heat dome, the extreme heat that we had last summer and why it was so much worse here in BC. You will find it at the thetai.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill 22, that is the legislation that amended the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act and allowed the government to start charging that fee for FOI requests. Yes, it has been very controversial. And, you know, I guess to say that they're doing something, they're continuing to discuss it, even though it's already been passed. The Legislative Assembly of BC's Special Committee to Review the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act has actually been holding hearings. They are required to do this by law every five years. And so people are making presentations to talk about the impact of the law. Well, the group that represents uh, about more than 90 community newspapers around the province was asked to present to the committee. Joining us now is Tyler Olson, editor and reporter for the Fraser Valley Current. Hi, Tyler. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So tell me about the presentation, then. What was the point that you wanted to make to them? Yeah, so so we, um, I'm part of Overstory Media Group. We, we actually don't have newspapers. We have uh, a series of websites and newsletters. And as a reporter at a new local journalism outfit, um, I have used uh, freedom of information requests to create 
and and report on a whole range of stories over the last both year and throughout my career. And the one thing that I found, and I, it's pretty obvious why, is that um, when the province brought in these fees, it creates a barrier, an obvious barrier, to um, using this tool to learn things about our government. And then one reason it creates this barrier is just because of the cost. But another reason is because BC used to have a system that was flawed, but it was flawed in a way that still allowed you could to, to get things done when it came to accessing public information. You could want to learn something from your government, and you could send a quick email. It was just as easy as sending an email um, to make a freedom of information request. And now you both have to pay that fee, and that fee is, is $10 and can be negligible. It can be not negligible if you're making multiple requests. Um, especially through different bodies. And then uh, you actually have to go through all the hoops of when you, as anybody knows, when you want to pay government anything, um, it's not as easy as just uh, as just clicking a button usually. there's uh, the, the systems are not as easy as they right. should be. It's not just like, oh, here's a system, pay here and submit your claim and you're all good. Yeah, and even if it was that, there's also just a psychological barrier when it comes to um, having to decide whether you think um, or whether you know um, something you're doing to report the news is going to um, create value or if this is something that um, is going to increase your knowledge in one way. And then having that barrier, everything costs money in life and and there's trade-offs. And when we don't spend money, or when we do spend money on one thing, it means we can't spend money on another thing to report the news. Right. So, Tyler, tell me, what kind of impact has that fee had on your work at the Fraser Valley Current? Because it's not like, you know, you've got some huge company that you can just, it's a business expense. Yeah, well, we're fortunate. We do have um, a company that has never complained about us spending money. And um, I've never been, it's never been suggested I, I shouldn't be, making freedom of information requests because they cost um, a little bit of money each one. What it is, is it's a a small deterrent as you go through your day um, that um, slightly changes the calculation when you're seeking to gather information, look at different ways to gather information. And the the other thing, problem we, we see is that municipalities and smaller levels of government are starting to also charge fees. And for us, that's a big problem because we report over, um, I believe it's eight different municipalities over a, a region between Langley and Hope. And if we're doing a story that requires information from each one of those municipalities and requires an F freedom of information request to eight different municipalities, we're suddenly looking at 80 bucks a pop. Wow. Um, okay. And that's just if we're talking about one subject. And um, so it can add up quickly to once every little government body jumps on board. No kidding. All right. Well, we'll find out what this committee has to say then too. Tyler, thank you. Thanks for having me. Tyler Olson is an editor and reporter for the Fraser Valley Current, one of the people who made a submission to the committee that is taking a look at the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. Now, the law says they have to do that every five years, but we know the big controversy here is the fact that they've made it. They put a few more hoops to jump through, and now they charge a $10 fee to file a Freedom of Information request. That is still not sitting well, and it shouldn't with a lot of people out there. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, let's do it. Let's talk about time change and whether or not we're going to do away with it here in BC. We've talked about it for the last few years, mainly because Premier John Horgan really pushed this hard after 2017 when he got into office. And then after finding out that, yeah, a lot of people would support this, it turns out we couldn't do anything until the United States moved forward on it. Well, that took a step forward yesterday when the U.S. Senate decided that, yeah, sure, they're going to support Senator Patty Murray's legislation and they're going to allow allow states to get rid of the 100-year-old practice of changing the clocks twice a year. So the U.S. House of Representatives must now take time to review the bill. So it's not there yet, but boy, it's a lot closer than it was a couple of days ago. Joining us now is Tara Holmes, co-founder of Stop the Time Change. Hi, Tara. Hi, well, thanks so much for having me on this morning. Now, Tara, I have to ask you, why do you feel Mm -hmm. so passionately about this that you would co-found an organization all about it? Well, yeah, there was only two of us here in Kamloops when we started it in 2015. But I will just say one thing that Mr. Horgan doesn't have to wait for those uh, folks down in Washington State and Oregon. He's already legislated that bill. So he has the whole power to just snap his fingers and enact the bill that he legislated. He's choosing to wait for those trading partners in the state. So right, he but, can do it. Yeah. But you said trading partners. So doesn't it make more sense to wait for your trading partners so that you all do it at the same time? Um, well, you know what? I might have said yes if this was uh, back before the internet, but with business being done 24-7, and I'll also Mr. Horgan knows that we are right beside Alberta, and they're one-hour difference, and we do a lot of business with Alberta as well. So I often think that if when one starts, the rest will follow, and, you know, Saskatchewan is, uh, doesn't touch their clocks, and I know um, Mr. Horgan spoke with Sandy Silver a couple of years ago prior to COVID to make sure he'd be on board uh, up in the Yukon, and lo and behold, he went ahead and stopped the time change um, himself. So yeah, I, I am excited of what's happening in the States. And the one thing that I was so shocked at is that it was unanimous. You know, this is bipartisan. And for 100 senators, both Republican and Democrat, to vote unanimously, this shows that th- this is going to happen. And I don't want to sound like cliche to say it's only a matter of time, but that time is, is it is gets getting closer. I will say I was also surprised by the fact that it was unanimous because, boy, you try to get those 100 people to agree on anything and there's very little that they will agree on. <laughs> but I guess, Tara, the question here too is, and I've had a lot of debate about that this morning, is daylight saving time or standard time? Oh, you know, I tell you, this is why, this is part of the problem with taking us so long. Everyone should just not focus on that and focus on what we focused on when we started our movement. Um, if you look at our Facebook page, the little sad animated clock says, just leave me alone. This isn't about standard or daylight in our eyes. We just want to stop the time change. And wherever it landed, we were okay with. But obviously, the majority of British Columbians and the majority of Canadians prefer the light at the end of the day. And of course, sleep scientists will say the original time was standard. Yes, it was. It was. It, it, yeah, back then, it, it, was, it was a different reason behind it. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but in 2007, George Bush decided to extend daylight time. So our bodies now are on this now until November. So we're, we're more used to being on DST. We only go to standard for just over four months. So it does, you know, you sort of think, what's the point? And I know that the one argument, sort of the, the playing devil's advocate, is the couple of weeks that it's going to be really dark in the morning. Kids are off school during that time anyway. But there's been a lot of studies done that it's far more dangerous for kids walking home after school than it is walking to school but, because they come home at different times. Right, but hasn't there also been a lot of studies done that show that standard time is just better for our circadian rhythm? 
Yeah, for sure. You know, if we'd been on standard time this whole time, our bodies would be more used to it. But, you know, when you talk to the people who, jurisdictions that have stopped their time change and you sort of ask, how did it go? For sure, it's going to take a bit of adjustment. But I'm sure you remember those bar owners that said they will not be able to withstand stopping smoking in bars. They're going to go out of business. And they didn't. <laughs> that's a, you know what? That's a good example. Because being in this business as long as I have, I've heard that the um, the sky is falling quite often, actually. Oh, yeah. And People then it just doesn't. are afraid of change, for sure. And once it happens, it, we just get used to it. And then we move on. And I'm telling you, we, we talk about this twice a year. And, you know, I know Mr. Horgan had, when we first started pestering Mr. Horgan, um, he told us that this item gets more correspondence in his office than any other topic. And, of course, that was before COVID. And also that survey that he put out to the people of BC was the most responded to survey in the history of all surveys. So this is important to people. And the local Chamber of Commerce here in Kamloops, the BC Chamber of Commerce, you know, tourism, they, as far as the economy goes, it makes much more sense to keep light later uh, for shopping, for attractions and, and for kids to play their sports. So it, it just makes more sense. But again, we don't care. We just want the time change to stop. Why do you think this is so important to people? You talked about how people respond to this, and they do, I know, because I've been getting emails all morning. But why mm-hmm. do you think people feel so passionately about this? Yeah, it's quite interesting because, of course, when my co-founder and I started this, we were by no means experts. We had our own little pet peeves with it. But what we found out was alarming uh, when we we were speaking to a a lot of uh, doctors and even those sleep scientists who would tell you that standard is the better time. They would agree that at least staying, getting, you know, stopping this biannual change. It's very bad for people with um, sleep disorders, mental health issues and seniors. You look at any seniors home when they change the clock. Very difficult on them. Talk to anybody with kids, with pets. This we've had when we first started this. We had people saying to us, "What's the big deal? The time change is no big deal. We don't care if it's here. What's the big deal?" Then they had kids, and then they emailed us and said, "Okay, we're on board. Stop the time change." And you look at a lot of um, nurses that are working overnights, and they have to work that extra hour. There's just a lot of. Um, and if you look at the statistics, when we fall back um, and the roads are dark and wet, a lot of pedestrian incidents, ICBC claims are going up. And for some reason, um, during this one, the, the spring forward, there's more heart attacks. So, you know, we you talk to top educators, kids are unruly in the classroom. It's really difficult for small kids as well. So, yeah, we've learned a lot during this for sure. Okay, so you sound, do you sound like positive? Do you feel positive that this is actually going to happen? You know, we we did, when we started this in 2015, we wanted success by 2020. And Mr. Horgan did send me a nice little souvenir package when he legislated the bill. But I feel like the only souvenir I want is the actual time change to stop. And I do appreciate the due diligence he's done. But I think that now that the people of BC has spoken and, you know, he wants to wait for Washington State, we're okay to wait another year, you know, because we've waited this long. And, you know, we're okay with that. And it sounds like November 2023 is when they're pushing in the States. And I do think, you know, going through the House, because you see, Mr. Horgan doesn't have to go through anybody now. He could do this himself. But if he's waiting for the states, I think we have a pretty good chance because for a unanimous vote to go to the House and then to the president's desk, the fact that it was unanimous um, is going to speak volumes. Well, we'll see what happens. Tara, thank you so much Mm -hmm. for your time. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it and have a swell day. You too. That's Tara Holmes. She's co-founder of Stop the Time Change. And as you can tell, quite passionate about the issue of time change. How about you? Now, we know that a lot of people respond to this. People have their preference. But are you ready to just get this thing over with? Like, stop talking about it. Let's do this. Simi at CKNW.com. You can call our buzz line 604-331-289. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to talk about the labor market because we know it's been very challenging out there for companies, businesses, managers to fill a lot of jobs. But is that still the case? Is that still happening? Well, our contributor, Raji Sohal, decided to dig into this and she joins us now. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simia. I've been wondering what recruitment agencies have been seeing because they are the uh, facilitators between the employers and the prospective employees. And I talked to Henry Goldbeck from a leading recruitment agency that he is the president of here in Vancouver. He said the current situation is like none other that he's seen in his 30 years of experience in recruiting. And he says something happened over the pandemic. And for now, it's sticking around. And he's seen it in lower paid jobs and even higher paid managerial level too. Right now, he says folks working in the hospitality industry continue to have the most choice. Choice is the thing that has changed so much. And workers can now be pickier, they can be more selective. I do wonder how these postings are going to be filled in time for the upcoming season for the hospitality industry this summer. Uh, But choice is what Henry was talking about. The lower paid positions, the less skilled workers or hospitality or, you know, people at minimum wage or, or, or close to minimum wage, they have more choices now and they're less likely, you know, from what we see uh, secondhand, they're less likely to want to put up with jobs that, uh, you know, that are uncomfortable or extremely difficult, or they feel they are being treated well as, or respected properly, right? So there's more choice for those people. And Simi, the hospitality industry doesn't have very much leeway in increasing salary, if that's the main attractor for someone. But he said that they can change how they treat workers, that that's going to matter. And that might attract workers back into posts. And Henry from Goldbeck Recruitment also told me that in higher managerial positions in other sectors, there was a value shift in society over the pandemic. The biggest change is the high, people looking for remote and or hybrid. So, so what we're seeing in the marketplace is people who are looking get multiple, usually end up with multiple offers, not just one. So they're not in the market for a long time. And, and, and if a company is interviewing and wanting to hire people, they need to move their process quickly or that person will have accepted another position by the time they've made a decision. The other thing we're seeing then, a very strong correlation to that is employers are prepared to make counter offers if someone gives their notice is accepting a new position. There's a much higher likelihood that they're going to receive a very positive counter offer from the employer because the employer knows that 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 person is going to be more difficult to replace than it was in the past. So those things are happening a lot and they're happening all the time. There's, uh, you know, more opportunities now. So more people are taking advantage of those things and looking, but the biggest change is hybrid and um, remote and companies that are rigid in not allowing that are really limiting their candidate pool really limiting their candidate pool and uh, and especially at the mid mid to senior mid to senior levels 
Yeah, he also talked about how flexibility was already on the table before COVID times for senior levels, but that the pandemic definitely ramped up the need for it. And he spoke of how employers who already have a good corporate culture are using that as a selling point. And you might recall, Simi, that last week we talked about a Canadian company that acknowledged how much time can go into preparing for a job interview uh, with them and they wanted to compensate people for that. I asked Henry Goldbeck if recruiters are doing similar things across the market. Companies that have a corporate culture that they view as attractive to employees are, you know, are going to stress that. When someone is considering joining a company, you know, money is one thing, the title, the challenge, sort of the hard, hard facts of a uh, of the position are, are, are always important, but the culture they're going to, how they feel they'll be accepted as part of the team, what's the environment like, you know, all, all of those things uh, also play a factor. And especially if they're looking at offers that are similar, right? So, you know, companies do need to be cognizant about that. And I think, you know, and I think they are making that change, you know, and it used to be in a more of an employer market as well, you know, here's the offer and this is what it is and it's in black and white and yeah, we'd love to have you join the team and, you know, give us, let us know within two days, right? Or we'll move on to the next candidate. And now it has to be more like, hey, we really want you to be part of this team for these reasons. We really want you to be involved in this team to work on these projects. We see a future for you here. That is so interesting, Raji, because the scenario that he described is pretty much, you know, what we saw for the last couple of decades. It's a, here's your offer, take it or leave it. Yeah. And now it's so yeah. different. It is so different. What he said really checked out with what I have heard from people in my community over the last year. It seems like everyone I knew actually changed jobs during the pandemic and that they were able to go back to the prospective employer and say, I want this, that, and the other and Simi, people that I've been talking to who have switched jobs over the pandemic haven't been talking about money being the motivator. It's been instead about like, what kind of team am I going to work with? Will I like these people? Are they easy to get along with? It was, it was about the culture more than anything else. But is that going to change? Because life is, as you know, so crazy expensive here right now. And I wonder if money, how much you earn in your salary may become the main motivator for people, especially as they are just, gosh, struggling to pay bills to get by. I think that, you know, the, the younger generation now, though, is, I mean, when I was growing up, it was you worked at a company, you worked there your whole life. And of course, we learned the hard way yeah. that that's not the way it goes. But I think this generation now entering the workforce and in the workforce, they're used to being mobile. They have no problem saying, yeah, we'll find something else. Yeah, not worried at all. I've seen people surf so many positions. And also, if you work at all in tech, Simi, these days, I've learned that you are not expected to stay long. Exactly. Like your employer especially expects that you will leave, if it's in tech, before a year. Now, I would not have dreamed of uh, staying in a position for less than a year because of how that looks on your resume. Um, and it's not Doesn't enough time anymore. to develop doesn't matter anymore. I know. Whole so new many world. things are in flux with this uh, labor market. Whole new world out there, Raji. Thank you. Thanks, Simi.